America's working class has been cheated. That is an assertion that has been getting a lot of currency lately. Our last presidential election went deep on that claim, in both parties, by the way. And the culprit most often blamed for that, it's that monstrous five-syllable word, globalization, the philosophy and the practice of free trade, which has been great for companies and for shareholders, but has had a devastating impact, it is argued, on the American working woman and man. Well, economists do agree that in the past four decades, the American working class, which we're defining tonight as people who lack a four-year college degree, they have seen flat wages and a steady disappearance of good jobs. But is globalization a main reason that that's happening to those workers? And for those workers, is globalization entirely bad? When you get down to it, what does the evidence say? Well, we think this has the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, globalization has undermined America's working class. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two experts in this topic who will argue for and against this resolution. Globalization has undermined America's working class. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the St. Regis Hotel in Aspen, Colorado, where we are appearing in partnership with the Aspen Ideas Festival, will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Our resolution, once again, globalization has undermined America's working class. We have one team arguing for the motion. Please welcome them. And I'm going to be starting first uh, to meet you, uh, Jared Bernstein. You have uh, debated with us before, so welcome back. Uh, you're a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. You were Vice President Joe Biden's chief economist. Uh, the last time you debated with us, interestingly, Jason Furman, who is your opponent at the other table tonight, was your debate partner. As a team, you were formidable. Formidable. I almost want to use the French pronunciation. Formidable. Formidable. So uh, are you planning to use your insider's knowledge of Jason's debate strategies against him tonight? I very much, uh, excuse me, my uh, voice is good. I very much am, and uh, I think... uh, The way to do that with Jason is to make a lot of sports analogies because they really (laughs) confuse him. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thank you. And I I see see you you brought a tie to Aspen. You wore a tie to Aspen. Well, I think the guy with the tie is the guy you want to listen to, but I'll let you decide that. All right, thanks very much, Jared Bernstein. Can you tell us who your partner is? Uh, This is my partner, someone I've known for 25 years. Uh, She's a dear friend of mine, and I consider her my mentor in, in this topic, Thea Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, Thea Lee. Theo, welcome uh, to Intelligence Squared. You're president of the Economic Policy Institute. You've spent two decades as an economist for the AFL-CIO, which is America's largest uh, federation of unions. It represents some 12.5 million working women and men. You've spent 25 years working on trade policy. So what got you interested in trade? Well, when I came to Washington in the early 90s, I got drawn into the NAFTA debate, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And I realized pretty early on that this was not some kind of a dry textbook discussion about tariffs, but it was a transnational battle over democracy, good jobs, workers' rights, and regulation. And so I was hooked. Because a lot's at stake. A lot is at stake. Okay, thanks very much, Thea Once again, the team arguing for the motion... And that motion again, globalization has undermined America's working class. We have two debaters arguing against it. First, Jason Furman. 
Welcome back uh, to Intelligence Squared, Jason. You're a professor of the practice of economic policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. You're a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. You were chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Tonight, as we said, you're going to be debating your former colleague, Jared Bernstein, on the impact of globalization. So is this the first time you two have debated the globalization issue with each other? You know, Jared and I agree on, I'd say, about 95% of economic issues. Um, And my goal tonight is to bring it to 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much, uh, Jason. And can you tell us who your partner is? Uh, Is someone um, I've only known for a few years, and every single thing he's ever told me, I have believed. James Manyika. Ladies and gentlemen, James Manyika. James, welcome. First timer at Intelligence Squared. You're a senior partner at McKinsey and Company. Uh, you're the chairman of their economics research arm, the McKinsey Global Institute. Your first time debating with us, but not your first debate. You debated at Oxford, the big time. That's for real. Uh, you st- I, I did. And and what, there you st- you studied robotics and mathematics and computers. Earlier in your career, you were a visiting scientist at NASA. So how do you go from, it's very eclectic, from robotics and space to thinking about trade policy and American workers? Well, I, th- I think for me it's the, um, it's the intersection of technology and the economy. I've always been fascinated by the kinds of technologies that drive innovation and growth, but also affects what real people in the real world actually do. So when you put that together with the economy, uh, these issues around trade and work and workforce become very, very important. So I'll, those are the issues that motivate me. What a great what perspective to bring here. And once again, thank you. And thank you again to the team arguing against the motion. I am very happy with the applause level. So that's working for me. Thanks so much. And so on to the debate. The debate goes in three rounds. We're going into round one. Round one is comprised of opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be six minutes each. Up speaking first for the motion, globalization has undermined America's working class. Here is Thea Lee, president of the Economic Policy Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Thea Lee. Good evening, everybody, and thanks so much to Intelligence Squared and the Aspen Ideas Festival for inviting me to participate tonight in this important conversation. I'm pleased to argue in favor of the motion, globalization has undermined America's working class. Over the last several decades, the U.S. government, under both Republican and Democratic administrations, embarked on a very particular form of global economic integration embodied in the trade agreements like the North American Free Trade Agreement, the World Trade Organization, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. These, the set of rules embodied in these agreements have undermined the bargaining power, the wages, and the democratic voice of America's workers. They've encouraged and rewarded outsourcing over exports. They've shifted the balance of bargaining power toward wealthy and already powerful multinational corporations and away from working people. This form of globalization has contributed substantially to the well-documented growth in in inequality and the stagnation of real wages for American workers. My partner, Jared, will talk about that in more detail. This is very much in contrast to the glowing promises made on behalf of these trade agreements by the proponents. And these policies have left American workers working harder for less, struggling to make a decent living, even in a wealthy and innovative country. 
I spent the last 25 years of my life in the trenches of the trade wars,、uh, representing American workers from the AFL-CIO at USTR and the State Department and the Labor Department. I testified in front of Congress, and I experienced firsthand the inordinate power and influence of corporate lobbyists, even in otherwise friendly democratic administrations. I was always.、Um, Always outnumbered and always outspent by the the massive voice of corporations, leaving workers less、um, workers' voice not as well represented. I am an economist by training, and I know that for all of you who have taken Econ 101, you've learned that lesson really well, which is free trade is good for everybody all the time. And yet, I think there is something a little bit dishonest and hypocritical. About this argument, having lived in those trenches, having been on the trade negotiation、um, discussions, and having seen the, the influence of corporations, and pa- what that's about is a couple of things. First of all, even in the neoclassical trade model, it's true that there is a, a real distributional impact of trade. This is predicted by the, the neoclassical trade model that in a wealthy Skill-intensive, capital-intensive country like the United States, it is predicted that working-class、um, workers, those without a college degree, will actually have their wages undercut by trade liberalization. And yet, the reason that economists make such a powerful argument in favor of free trade is they say, well, it is possible to tax the winners and compensate the losers so that everybody comes out ahead. But do we do that? No, we don't do it. We don't even think about doing it. Not only that, but we have doubled down in the other direction. But it's also true that the trade model is very narrow. The textbook trade model、uh, is one that assumes perfect competition, full employment, balanced trade, and it assumes away pesky problems like externalities, like capital mobility, the arbitrage against labor and regulation that happens when companies. Uh, pit governments and workers against each other across national borders, and it assumes away the unfair trade practices by other countries. Well, let's break it down. How has globalization undermined the American working class? Well, the first thing really is about bargaining power. Think about <coughs> bargaining power, and if you think about trade agreements that make it easier and let more certain and more profitable for companies to move jobs overseas, they have gained. Their bargaining power relative to working people who who aren't mobile. American workers can't outsource themselves. They need to make a living with a good American job on American soil. Whereas their boss can pit them against workers in China or Bangladesh or Mexico, and threaten to move the job overseas if they ask too hard for a raise or health care or a pension or a bathroom break or safety goggles or a union. So all those things. This is the lived reality. For so many American workers, they understand the dynamics of power that globalization has exacerbated. The particular form of globalization.、Um, but let's be clear: our choice is not whether to be in the global economy or not, whether to trade or not to trade, whether capital flows and immigration will happen. But rather, what are the rules that we, as a society, Choose to put in place to regulate these transnational flows, and whom do these rules serve? We've made a series of wrong policy choices over the last 25 years, negotiating and implementing flawed trade and investment deals that empowered and enriched multinational corporations, leaving behind domestic producers, workers, and communities.
And globalization, technology, and domestic policy choices have worked together to undermine the bargaining power, the wages, and the democratic voice of American workers, with devastating results for American workers in the U.S. economy. We need to recognize we have mismanaged globalization in the past so that we can improve our policy choices in the future. And therefore, I ask you to vote yes on the proposition that globalization has undermined the American working class. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thiele. Jason, and that is our resolution. Globalization has undermined America's working class. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, Jason Furman, professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Furman. So, um, thank, you, um, thank you so much for including me in this debate, inviting me. I'm here to Aspen and just the fabulous work Intelligence Squared does um, to put these together. The question that we're debating today is whether globalization has undermined the working class. I want to talk about what globalization has been. Since the end of World War II, global trade volumes has increased 40-fold. That's in part because of some of the trade agreements that Thea talked about. But those trade agreements are only a part of the process of globalization. An even bigger part has been the invention of containers that you can put on ships and make it much cheaper to ship goods. The invention of the internet, which allows more coordination across borders. The widening of the Panama Canal. And a whole bunch of other developments, as well as the fact that tariffs have come down 75% from what they were at the end of World War II, and we've pursued a number of deals that make that trade um, easier. Taken together, that's the process of globalization. And what James and I will be trying to convince you of tonight is that that process of globalization has left the working class in America on net better off, and that without it, they would be considerably worse off. That if instead of everything I just described, we'd kept tariffs where they were in 1945, we hadn't widened the Panama Canal, but we narrowed it, we hadn't built out America's ports, but we put rocks in the harbors, and we had never invented the container, the working class would be much worse off today than they are. That globalization has on net been good. Not for everyone, not managed perfectly, Many problems, many of them, most of them, in fact, I would agree with Jared and Thea on and what we need to do um, to deal with them. But let's put some magnitudes on it. Um, When I was in the White House, they told us, never talk about the consumer benefits of trade because it sounds like you're willing to sacrifice jobs so that people can buy cheap underwear. Biggest problem we have in our economy, though, is wages. And if you can buy more with an hour's work, that means you've got a pay increase. That means you've got to raise. Right now in America, there's 325 million people that buy imported products. On average, a recent study in a leading economics journal found they're 8% better off because of the imported goods that they buy. Now, we all know averages, but there's inequality. Not everyone benefits the same amount from trade. At the 10th percentile, your benefit is 67%. At the median, 
it's about 35%. Why so much larger? Because you're spending a lot more money on things like clothing that are imported rather than attending debates in Aspen, which um, don't, aren't imported. So there has been on the consumption side something that I would not sneer at, demean, or rush past, but enormously important to the purchasing power of 325 million Americans. Now let's talk about what it means um, for workers. There's 14 million Americans that work in export industries. On average, they get paid 18% more than other workers controlling for their characteristics. Um, We did research that just based on the increase in the export share over the last two decades, the typical working class worker is getting an extra $1,300 from that opportunity to work in industries that are higher paid, better jobs in general um, than the ones that we are losing. That's just exports. Of course, globalization is more than that. There's massive capital flows, and $4 trillion has been invested from abroad in the United States, creating jobs for Americans in industries that do disproportionate amounts of investment, disproportionate amounts of R&D, and pay disproportionately higher wages. Those two sides, the consumer side, which affects every single American, And the producer side, which affects those who are working for it, have enormous benefits. There's nothing in economics that says that trade benefits everyone. Absolutely, um, it has winners and losers. It may even make a minor contribution to inequality, something we can come back to in the course of this debate. But the proposition here is, has it helped or undermined the working class. And if that means that that whole process of globalization, that whole process of greater integration, partly furthered by public policy, partly advanced by um, technological innovations, has benefited the working class, leaves them better off, and without it, they'd be worse off. If you're convinced of that at the end of tonight, then I would ask you, to vote against the motion. Thank you. Thank you, Jason Furman. And a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Globalization has undermined America's working class. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Debating for the motion, here is Jared Bernstein, senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, former chief economist to Vice President Joe Biden. Ladies and gentlemen, Jared Bernstein. I want to uh, say thank you to uh, IQ Squared, awesome staff, great to be here at the Ideas Festival, and great to be here with my friends Jason and and James. Yes, I have uh, a sore throat. I feel much better than I sound. Uh, If it helps, close your eyes and pretend you're listening to Barry White. Uh, It helps our side. But I apologize for that. Again, I, I feel okay. I just sound funky. Thea and I are arguing for the motion that globalization has lastingly hurt millions of working-class families. For the next few minutes, I'll uh, take you through the theory and the 
evidence in support of the motion. Expanded trade has thrown the working class into much more competition than they experienced before trade with lower wage countries took off. Now, economic theory, and I'm quoting the uh, trade economist Danny Roderick here, predicts, quote, that low-skilled workers are unambiguously worse off as a result of trade liberalization. So directly contradicting uh, some of the points that Jason just made. This notion that production workers in richer countries lose out, so we're the richer countries, that working-class workers in countries like ours lose out when trade expands with poorer countries is not a special case of a particular model. Roderick says, and I'm quoting again, this is standard economic fare familiar to all trade economists, even if not voiced too loudly in the public. Well, Thea and I are here to voice it loudly today, or at least as loudly as I can, given my throat. (laughs) But theory only tells you where to look. It doesn't tell you what's actually happening. First, our openness to trade uh, has basically tripled over the last four decades (coughs) as the stagnation has set in. But prior to the period of expanded trade, working class compensation doubled along with productivity growth. Since then, since the period of expanded trade, working class compensation has grown only 12%, while productivity is up 74%. So 74% on productivity, 12% uh, over 45 years, real. Now, I say inflation-adjusted, and that's a very important point, because, again, Jason was talking about the price effects, the advantageous price effects. They're built in to this real compensation calculation. It takes account of those gains. Uh, Had working-class compensation kept up with productivity over the period of expanded trade, it would have been $15 per hour higher. And that translates into $30,000 a year more for working-class workers. Let's take a a, a good proxy for, I think, the working-class. Blue-collar manufacturing workers, okay? In the period before trade expanded, their paycheck grew 3% per year consistently from the late 40s to the mid-70s. Since then, it has grown 0%, again, over 45 years. In fact, the real wage of a blue-collar manufacturing worker was about 22 bucks in today's dollars in 1973. Again, all inflation-adjusted, so price effects from trade are embedded in these calculations. Last month, it was a dollar lower. It was $21 per hour, and that's, that's 45 years later. Now, you might be thinking, all of these are completely different groups of workers, and of course, they are, but that just further bolsters our argument. These workers are more experienced, they're more highly educated, they're more productive, and yet they earn less. Their living standards have been undermined. Next, there's the evidence of the China shock. Careful analysis finds that the sharp increase in imbalanced trade with China in the 2000s explains about 40% of the job losses in factory jobs in those years. That's about a million jobs in manufacturing, highly geographically concentrated, by the way, which is important given the uh, way electoral uh, politics has played out in this space. Spillovers from the China shock to other sectors led to the loss of another uh, million jobs. 
Now, Thea and I are not arguing that trade is the sole factor responsible for all these trends. Uh, You already heard a little bit about automation and technology, but teasing apart these factors is much harder than economists make it sound. Consider that uh, advances in shipping technology have significantly lowered uh, 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 container ship uh, loading by about 90%, and that the internet has uh, just uh, fueled the cross-border financial flows, as Jason was just saying, we agree with that. Um, but it is obvious, it is obvious to us that technology facilitates globalization, which brings us right back to this institutional context within which both technology and globalization are taking place. And we're left with two opposing propositions. One, expanded trade puts large groups of American workers into global competition, which hurts their living standards. And two, even with those losses, increased trade is in the aggregate pro-growth, as our opposition has, has stated. And the contention that holds them together, that ties those two ideas together, is that the benefits of increased trade are such that the winners can compensate the losers and still come out ahead. But just because the winners can compensate the losers doesn't mean that they're going to do so. Here and everywhere else in this debate tonight, we must get away from the abstract truisms and look unflinchingly at the U.S. case. In our economy, not only do those who benefit the most from trade fail to compensate the losers, they use their winnings in the context of our pay-to-play politics to buy the politicians and the policies that will further protect them and enhance their winnings. They don't help the losers of trade, they hurt them. And in that sense, they undermine the middle class, and I ask you to support the motion. Thank you. Thank you, Jared Bernstein. And that motion again, globalization has undermined America's working class. Here to make his opening statement against the motion, James Manika. He is chairman and director of the McKinsey Global Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, James Manika. Thank you. Good evening. Delighted to be here and um, joined by colleagues to argue this topic. I think it's important to get very specific about what's actually going on. Uh, let's tell you a couple stories. So if you and your nine friends uh, worked in apparel manufacturing in 2000, uh, a decade later, only three of you have jobs. You lost them. In fact, if you take another example, if you worked in a steel, in a, in a textile mill, again, you and your nine friends in 2000, today only three of you have a job. And it is, the, it is the case that those jobs have gone overseas. In fact, if you actually look at particular communities, and, and we, t- we, t- we try to le- look at these things in a very micro-localized way, if you are living, for example, in Webster County in Mississippi, where apparel manufacturing was the dominant economic activity in that county, something like a third of the jobs disappeared overseas. So it is the case that, in fact, these have been very deep impacts in these local communities. So if the question is, have any American working class members been impacted by globalization, the answer is clearly yes, because these are real people. It has actually happened. But I don't think that's the, that's the debate we're asking. But if it's also the question is, have we done enough to assist those workers transition, get skills, and deal with those, the difficulty of that impact, we have not done enough. I don't, so I don't think that's the debate, and I don't think my colleague and I would dispute any of that. I think, but if on the other hand, uh, the question is whether working class Americans everywhere uh, have fared well or not over the last uh, 
two, three decades? Again, the answer is they haven't. And I think some of the statistics that Jared uh, pointed out are, are, are true. The working class in America has not done very well. Wage income inequality, wage stagnation, rising costs of living, all of that is absolutely true. But I think it's important to come back to what's actually on the table in the proposition we're debating. And the question is whether, in fact, uh, has globalization been the key reason why the working class Americans have suffered? That's the proposition, not whether American working class members are not doing well. So on that question, that's where Jason and I have a different point of view. And I actually think it's uh, globalization has actually benefited the working class. Now, Jason has made uh, a lot of the arguments that we would make uh, so I won't repeat them, although I'm sure we'll get into them. But I think it's also important to think about, if we are talking about the working class across America, who are they? So I think a few things are very important. If you look at the people who are typically thought of as a working class, uh, some, there's about 70, 75 million of them out of roughly the 125 million workers who are in the non-farm sector in the economy. So it's about 60% of people in, working in the economy. It's a, it's a big part. If you look at where they work... Most of them work, so, so the majority of them don't work in these directly traded sector. In fact, by various estimates, the, the proportion of the working class Americans who work in these traded sectors that face globalization is about 20%. The rest are working in other places. They're working in retail. They're working in a whole bunch of other places. So we, we need to be very clear about which, what proportion of Americans in the working class are directly facing uh, the impacts of, of, of globalization. Jason's already pointed out, and I think it's important to remember that, in fact, if you look at the working class, they're also consumers. These are families who are trying to earn a living and so forth. And you, we know that, in fact, a big portion of what they spend money on is purchasing products, goods, and services, many of which are traded products, goods, and services, whether they themselves work in the traded sector or not. It doesn't matter, but they're purchasing these pro uh, pro uh, uh, products and services. So I think it's important to recognize who they are because we think about the impacts of globalization. And quite often we end up conflating what's happened with the working class Americans generally with what's happened to, in particular, the manufacturing or traded sectors specifically. So I think that's an important thing we should keep in mind. But I want to make another point uh, in my opening remarks, which is I think if we are asking the question what's happened to the working class Americans, it's important we actually think about who are the real culprits. Are we scapegoating goating globalization or not? So I won't repeat the statistics that Jared pointed out about income stagnation and all that. They're all true. Uh, the, the American working class hasn't fared very well. But let's look at who the culprits are. So I'm going to look at two places. Let's take manufacturing, which is often the epicenter of a lot of these uh, points that are made. If you look at manufacturing itself specifically, and you look at the job losses we've had, most careful studies when they try to attribute what proportion of the jobs we've lost in manufacturing have been lost to offshoring or jobs being sent away, the estimates typically range between about 13 and about, the highest I've seen is 33%. Our own work suggests it's 20%. Uh, uh, some other careful work in, and, and, um, that has been quoted by Jared, by David Autry and others, has a number that's in the 20-something percent. No one is saying it was 90%. We can debate in, in that small range. So it's important to keep that in mind. So if, that wasn't, if, if offshoring and globalization wasn't the reason, what are the other reasons? One of them is technology and automation. A lot of routinized tasks have actually started to get automated. I, I studied robotics and I do a lot of that work, and you can see it. In fact, the question I would ask often is, pick any factory that's been built in the last five years anywhere in the world, 
And go look to see how many people work there. It doesn't matter where it is, not very many. So what we're doing in terms of automation, automating how factories and manufacturing plants work has had a big impact on this. So anyway, so the, and then if you also ask the question in manufacturing, uh, so what about the rest of it? So some of this is competition. We, there are lots of countries that have trade surpluses in manufacturing sectors, whether it's Germany and others. If you actually look at what's happened, so take automotive sector, for example. James Manyika, I'm sorry, your time is up, but thank you very much. And, and what I always say when that happens, and it happens in almost every debate we do, I say continue your thoughts in the, in the, in the next upcoming round. There's no great disgrace in that. So that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and then from you, our live audience, here in Aspen. The team arguing for the motion, Thea Lee and Jared Bernstein, uh, they are making it very clear that they are not against free trade, but they say it is dishonest to say that free trade is good for all, all of the time, that the working class is working harder for less, and yes, globalization is to blame, that it has thrown them into a much more tense intense competition that they've ever experienced before, that it has led to a loss of their bargaining power, a loss of voice, a loss of wages. They came in with a lot of statistics, one that stands out. I also am experiencing a loss of voice. Yes, (laughs) and I'm close behind. They uh, they use the statistics, they they point to uh, one group of blue-collar workers whose uh, real wage in 1973 was $22, now it's $21. They say that um, on the whole... um, Trade in the aggregate, aggregate, uh, the whole nation might be doing well, but the winners in that game, uh, if they have the chance to compensate the losers, they don't seem to be doing so. The team arguing against the motion, James Manika and Jason Furman, uh, they concede absolutely that the working class is uh, struggling, uh, that it is not doing well. They concede that point, but they say that globalization is not the main driver of that. In fact, they make the argument that on net, Uh, The working class is better off today than if there had not been globalization. They say on the consumer side, you have to look at the fact that imported goods cost less than they would otherwise, and that puts more money into people's pockets regardless of what class they're in, but actually benefits the working class more because they're the ones who would be buying those goods. On the supply side, they say that because of globalization, $4 trillion dollars uh, comes into the United States invested in creating jobs and in res- uh, research and development. And they also point out that there are op- other culprits uh, impacting the working class, such as technology and automation. So we're going to peel back uh, some of those ideas that we heard there uh, and explore some other things. And uh, James, you can also uh, get to the things that you weren't able to get to. Um, but I want to start with a question to the side arguing for the motion, uh, Jared and Thea. Um, your opponents made the point that only 20% of those who, who comprise the working class are actually exposed to the impact of globalization directly. That, puts, that takes 80% right. of the people off the table. What's your response work, to they that? Work, they work in traded sectors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Say again, I'm sorry? They work in traded sectors. Okay. This is the work of... We're ready for that one. <laughs> okay. So who would like to take it, Thea? I, I'll start. But... Because you work in a traded sector doesn't mean you're walled off from people in the service sector because the, the labor market Wait, can is fungible. Can I one second yes. for our podcast listeners and for people like myself who are just not as smart as you guys? The term traded sector, just so we uh, completely understand what that means. Uh, goods uh, or services, I'm not sure what your, your figure is, that are traded across boards. So it could be either exports or import competing. Okay, things that you put on a ship or a plane that go to another part of the world. Okay. 
And, but so the traded sector may only be 20%, but all those workers who are seeing their wages bid down and eroded in the traded sector, they're going to go off if they lose their jobs. Let's say a steel worker laid off because his company moved overseas is going to go and compete for a job at Walmart and is going to put downward pressure on the wages in Walmart. And the other thing that's also important in terms of spillover effect, that this is one labor market, but also as you decimate a community, because let's say the factory closes and people are laid off and they don't have uh, money to pay taxes anymore. So that is also going to undermine the public sector. So we're really connected to each other in this economy. Okay, James, what about that response that, 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 you, you, that there's not a wall between those two groups of people, that the, the impacts uh, bleed across? those lines? No, the, 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 the impacts do bleed, but I think keep in mind that one of the things we haven't talked enough about is what's the contribution that globalization has done in terms of GDP growth? So, for example, the estimates... But, are, but before you get to the positive statement, I, I actually want to hear... Link it to that. You will come back so, to it. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So the, the point about if, if, the, if, if globalization has added about $2 trillion, this is the Peterson Institute estimate, our estimates about $1.8 trillion, to GDP growth in the United States... That benefits all workers Mm -hmm. and creates dynamism in the economy enough so that even if you're working in the retail (coughs) sector, there's enough economic growth and dynamism that's actually going on. And also keeping in mind the fact that when, when trade happens, money flows here too. So, for example, foreign direct investment that comes here is supporting somewhere about 12 uh, uh, 12 you know, million workers, for example, are working in, in places like South Carolina and others. So I think it's, it is connected, but to look at just one piece of it, which is workers leaving traded sectors, going to other places, that's just one part of it. It doesn't look at the next. Jared Bernstein. Yeah, well, <clears throat> the, uh, Thea and I both uh, uh, underscore and agree that uh, trade can be pro-growth. It's like when people ask me, as I'm a commentator on the economy, they say, you know, Jared, how's the economy doing? How's GDP doing? And my answer is always, well, whose economy are you talking about? Because we have a very serious distributional problem in this country. So you can't just hold out GDP growth in a debate about whether the working class is undermined by trade when I've just recited a set of, uh, uh, of statistics showing that, in fact, uh, their hourly wage has been zero in terms of growth for 40 years. And this gets to one of my main objections to uh, the, the uh, other side's argument, which is you know, trade enables people to buy a lot of cheap stuff. No question, that's true. But that's reflected in the real calculations of the wage story and the income story that we're telling. So maybe if trade doubled its amount of cheap stuff that people could buy, their real incomes would grow, but their real incomes have not grown. They've been so, flat or they've... If I could um, take on... No. I'd love to, to take on the topic of inequality. I think there is way too much inequality um, in this country. If you look at the top 1%, it gets about... Um, the top 1% today gets about 20% of the income. One thing Jared's been doing is he's been referring to the period 1973 to the present. It's really important to unpack that period. From 1973 to 1990, there was very little growth of trade with developing countries. The growth of trade over that period was with countries just as rich as the United States, and we were selling things like cars back and forth to each other, the same type of stuff. Since 2000, trade with developing countries has exploded, particularly trade with China. Now let's go back to that top 1% share. It doubled before China entered the WTO from about 9% to about 20%. Since then, 
it's risen by one percentage point. If you look at it after taxes and transfers, its share of the top 1% has fallen by 1%. Economists who study inequality widely know that the fastest period of increasing inequality was in the 1980s, when we weren't trading very much with Mexico, we were Jason, trading barely at all. Let, let me break in for a second because there was a piece of what Jared said that I was hoping you were going to respond to. And he's telling this audience and y- you and everyone here that your claim that if you can buy a lot of cheap stuff, you're right. better off, that he, he, he says that idea is blown up by the fact that that's accounted right. for in real wages. And I want to know right. that he oh. just blow up your argument. So, so, no, first of all, two things. Two things here. One, I think correctly measured real wages are higher. The idea that people are worse off materially than they were in the early 1970s, I think, is absurd if you look at the set of material goods that people have today compared to then. But second of all, even if they were, that doesn't prove it was trade. That's what I was just getting at, John, that the period of expanded trade with developing countries is not the same as the period of very rapidly rising um, inequality. And if sometimes that calls into question Jared's causal link between trade and the uh, statement look, about look, the work. Well, the, 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 okay, the hourly wage numbers are as I recited them. That's not controversial in James. You can use, James, if you use CPI. James acknowledged that. The, the reason why middle-income families have higher incomes now in many cases, is not because they have more wage growth than I've said. I've just given you the statistics. It's because they're working a lot more hours. They've compensated for stagnant wages with more hours of work. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of that comes from more women in the workforce, which is a very positive advance. But it's, it, the wage stagnation is a real factor that's at the heart of our case for undermining the middle class. Now, the 1980s was a period of large big negative trade deficits that put our manufacturers in competition with uh, workers uh, in other countries who weren't necessarily from developing countries. I agree with Jason's point there. Uh, but we, we were on the losing side of that, uh, of, of that competition, as is demonstrated by, by the uh, trade imbalances of, of that period. Okay, let me, yeah, let's just James I, I, I want to come that. in, because, again, this is part of the issue we're having. We, we keep conflating the stagnant wage story with globalization. Let's look at some of the other factors that are driving uh, the the pressure on wages affecting American families. We know that, for example, the labor share of GDP has been falling across advanced economies, including the United States. And lots of careful studies that have been done, including a recent one by the IMF that's looked at what's been driving the declining share of uh, wage income in the national income. And it concludes that half of that is probably technology, the portion of that that's only attributable to trade is at best a quarter. So that's one factor. Yeah, then yeah. you've got the other factor that's going on, which is the fact that productivity. So for a, for a very long time, we used to count on the fact that whenever we had productivity growth, you'd have wage growth. That has not been as true recently as it's been historically. So wages aren't quite growing up, growing up. Uh, as much as productivity does. Well, so let me, let me we take, have to look at all these Right. Factors. I want to take that point to Thea. I, to, to respond to your opponent's argument that I'm hearing, <clears throat> it's other things. Other things are causing this. Uh, very clear on technology that mm-hmm. I think anybody can understand automation. Right. What about the response that it's not just globalization? Well, it isn't just globalization, but the, question, and the, the question isn't 
whether globalization is the only factor that has undermined the American working class. It is whether globalization has undermined the American working class. And what Jared and I would argue is that there are a lot of factors, as you say, and we would agree with that, a lot of factors that happen at the same time, the technological innovation, uh, the attacks on unions, the... um, regressive changes in the tax code, the failure of American business to invest in infrastructure and in skills. But a lot of those things, what I would argue is you can't separate them. And as Jared said before, when you look at, even if you look at trade and technology, uh, if you are beset by imports, you're a business owner in the United States, you're producing something, and you find that cheap imports are flooding, one response is going to be to automate uh, and to shift away. And so you, you can't take apart automation and globalization so easily. And also, I would argue that multinational corporations have used the power and the wealth, as Jared said, that they got from trade agreements and globalization. They used that power and their bargaining power to attack unions and to to undermine uh, minimum wage and to erode living standards in a whole slew of ways. I do think it's true that the sense of this resolution is not that only globalization has, but that globalization has significantly. And I think your... You, you positioned yourself with, with the, the best counter to that, saying, actually, workers would be better off without globalization. I, I want you to go deeper right. on that thought. Worse. So our argument... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, 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 but I want to do I, it so that the I, edit I, I, can I, clean it up so that I, I never said that. Uh, so <laughs> your argument is that workers today would be worse off without globalization. Right. Globalization brings benefits. Globalization um, brings costs. I talked about um, some of those benefits... When James and I talk about it being small, we're not saying it's a small cost. We're saying some of the costs that people identify are relatively small. To give a sense of how you could measure that, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics used to do a survey every year of how many mass layoffs companies conducted. And they went and figured out the reasons why companies conducted those layoffs. They found that 3% of them were because of trade, because they'd moved jobs overseas, because they had closed because of trade. Now, if that was the only thing that trade did, and trade was 3% of the mass layoff problem and there was nothing else to trade, then we would join um, the other side. But our point is that when you're talking about the downsides, that's on the downside. That's one way of quantifying it. To do that upside-downside again, um, there is the study by um, David Otter et al. that Jared cited, excellent economist, 2.4 million manufacturing jobs, lost to China from 1999 to 2011. The way they did that study was they looked at local areas and figured out which areas got more imports. And the ones that got more imports lost jobs. Another economist, the head of the National Bureau of Economic Research trade program, organizations Thea used to be on the board of, used that exact same thing, but he looked at local areas that increased exports and asked what happened to jobs there. And then he added up the two, And you came out 700,000 jobs ahead. That's labor demand. Other stuff is going on in monetary policy because of trade. So absolutely, 2.4 million jobs lost to imports to China. At the same time, many million more created due to U.S. exports elsewhere. After all, when we opened up China's market, the okay. imports went up 886%. Let's, let's let your opponents respond to some There are clearly... Do, 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 uh, again, I was going to uh, yield to Thea, but okay, Thea, yeah. do you want to... Go ahead. There are cle- He's got the voice problem. There, there are clearly... Sorry. <clears throat> there are clearly benefits to global trade. There are clearly benefits to global trade for everybody who takes their wallet out and goes shopping in whatever class you're in. And 
That's why I object to the opposition's use of this counterfactual, this other world, where there's no trade at all. It's like somehow the idea is that uh, either trade is undermining the working class, or if there were no trade, everybody would be worse off. That's not our point. Our point is that under the trade regime that Thea described in her opening statement, we have undermined the working class such that their bargaining power, their compensation, their democratic voice has been damaged. It's not the only thing that's damaged them. And by the way, I think it was James a minute ago said, you know, it's not 90%. Nothing is 90%. You can't find any economic causal factor that gets you above 15 or 20% in any of this debate. So that's a red herring. Globalization, as implemented in the U.S., is one important factor undermining the well-being of the Okay, I want to go to James, and then I want to go to Thea. James. Well, well, I I think if the argument is let's fix how it works. I think we'd agree with that. But that's right? not our argument. Right, but that's not the argument. That's not the argument. So they, they, they keep going to the side of the way we've implemented it doesn't work. But that's not the debate. The debate is who's to blame. I think it's important to actually look at some of the other factors. One of the things that's quite striking, and there was a congressional effort around America Competes. I was part of the commission that looked at this. And we looked at what is changing over the last 30, 40 years in the American economy in a way that impacts workers. There's a bunch of things. One of them is the fact that the amount that we invest in skills and training has actually been declining for a very, very long time. And James, I, I just want to encourage a, you to... You don't have to make the right. case to me. Like, to, to right. make it, these are the voters, right. so go for them. So I was looking at the other side. Yeah, and um, to the other side. But, 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 so, so we've done things like reduce our investments in, work, in skills and training mm-hmm. in a way that's affect all workers. We've changed how... Uh, the private sector largely works. So you've got these things around, so for example, you mentioned unions and so forth. We've done other things called, one example is work fissuring. So for example, if you are a company that's focused on your core business, which is a good thing, you then outsource, even if it's in the United States, services, whether it's janitorial services and so forth, the career pathways, skills, and ability of those people to do well has been dramatically diminished. So I think as we think about this, there are all these other factors that in fact probably affect larger numbers of workers. Because again, I keep coming back, 11% of the American workforce works in manufacturing, 20% work in traded sectors. There's a much larger economy out there that uh, ordinary Americans are working in where they're not facing these things directly. And it doesn't work very well there. And yet, travel around the country and go to those areas of the country where manufacturing used to be a prime mover. And I think what you can see is that the kind of trade, the kind of globalization that we have engaged in, and, and I think it's important here, that globalization, I'm going to define it as the set of rules around trade, international investment, immigration. It, it isn't, you know, whether we trade it or not, it, it is What rules, what are the policy choices we made as a country? And I think it is important to say that going forward, we can make a different set of choices. That's the argument I would make. I wouldn't say we need to stop trading. We need to stop investing. That is idiotic. You can't in 2018 think that that's realistic, that we're not going to trade. What we can say is that as a country, we have to make a different set of choices because the choices we've made have hurt working people. They have undermined uh, their, their bargaining power. We have written these trade agreements that have 
imbalanced power towards multinational corporations. They didn't want to export more stuff to other countries. They wanted to move the jobs. They wanted to use these trade agreements as a way of arbitraging uh, governments against each other and workers against each other. And they succeeded. And the outcome has been that we undermined America's working class with the kind of globalization that we put in place. John, I, I, I want to go to audience. Oh, oh, can I talk a little bit about... I'd love to... Right after Jason speaks, um, I want to go to audience... No, qu- let, me just, let me just set this up. I want to go to audience questions right after Jason's comment. And the way it will work, as in other uh, um, events here, raise your hand, a microphone will be brought to you. We do need you to wait for the microphone. <coughs> please stand, tell us your name, and ask a question. And please keep the question on topic, and please do not debate the debaters. Jason. Right. So let's talk about um, manufacturing for a second. It's declined enormously um, in the United States. It's created huge problems for communities across our country. It's also declined, by the way, um, in China. It's declined in Germany. It's declined in the Netherlands. It's declined just about um, everywhere. I'm talking about employment right now. Employment peaked in 1979. Does anyone know when manufacturing production peaked? June 28, 2018. We're producing more than we've ever produced before. That gets to James's point that we're producing it with fewer people. In fact, if you look at the shrinking of the manufacturing sector, in the 24 years before NAFTA, we lost 11 percentage points of our manufacturing sector. In the 24 years since NAFTA, China's entry into the WTO and the like, that, stable, that reduction has been at a slower pace. It's been at seven percentage points a year. So again, a really key thing, everything James and I are arguing is not that there aren't problems out there, but let's not just say there's a problem, there's trade, ergo trade um, must be the problem. Let's try to look a little bit deeper as to whether the cause and effect really um, bears out in the evidence. And on the case of manufacturing, if we got rid of our manufacturing deficit entirely, our manufacturing share of employment would be one percentage point higher. And that's assuming that it didn't get hurt by all of the inputs to our manufacturing sector okay. that we get from abroad. I'm going to go to questions now. Are you, are, is one of you like dying to respond to that? Because that was a I just really well-made <clears throat> point. And I, I, feel I like wanted to um, make, make one point about the, uh, about the U.S. versus Germany. So in the U.S., can, we have... Can you, can, and can you make that tight? Yes, I, I, I do want to get to questions. We have 10% of our uh, workforce in manufacturing. In Germany, they have 20%. If we had another 10% of our workforce in manufacturing, that'd be 15 million more manufacturing jobs. So I don't think those comparisons should leave that difference out. Right. Sir, f- uh, second row and right in front of me. I'm not sure where the mic is coming from. It's coming all the way from the back. And again, if you could tell us your name when the, you get the mic, thanks. Uh, Mark Davis, I'd like you to um, focus a little bit on the non-economic factors embedded in the word uh, undermined, such as the opioid crisis, uh, the alienation felt by American workers that have had a major impact on the last election, uh, the sense of alienation from uh, the political system, uh, a loss of sense of power, etc. And uh, I'd actually like to also bring into that framework uh, Thea's opening remark that globalization has led to a loss of bargaining power and just power in general for the workers. I think that that's also can be reasonably rolled up into this question. And it's clear that this question, I think, was dr- addressed to the side, arguing 
uh, that globalization is not a net negative, right. but a net positive. Uh, I guess I'd Jason say Frank. Jared said, you know, there's no problem. You know, there's no factor that explains 15% of a problem. Um, our argument is that this is minus 15% of the problem. And in fact, I think it's by placing too much weight on globalization, we've made these other problems worse. Because if you think our problem is that our trade deficit is caused by China, it's not caused by China, it's caused by mistakes that we make here um, in the United States. And if you, think, if you get distracted and think that steel tariffs are a way to help American manufacturing as opposed to investing in training, investing in American industry, um, I think a lot of the protectionist debate has distracted us from the real problems, the real solutions, and made these issues worse. I, I, can I come back to you with that question? I, 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 think, I, I think I heard in that question whether, there's a, whether you can draw a nearly straight line between globalization policy and, for example, the opioid crisis. Right. Can you be that specific? Well, let me, James, yeah, let me, let me, let me, let me, and I'll come to this side. Yeah. James, you want to? No, no, no. I was going to say, I think, I think that there's a tremendous sense of alienation uh, and people feeling that, in fact, the economy doesn't work for them, that, in fact, their pro- future prospects don't look very good in that way they live, uh, is, in fact, the, 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 there's very little optimism. But I think a lot of that goes to the broader issues we're talking about around what is it that's happened to incomes, the ability to have a living, at least a, a, an ability to live an ability to send your kids to school. And a lot of that has its roots in the <clears throat> income stagnation that we're talking about. And the big drivers for that, let's not forget, uh, you know, a big part of the income stagnation, we had just had a massive recession and a financial crisis, which explains a lot of it. Then we've got these other structural things like labor share of income that are starting to change the way the economy works. And then we've also got one of the things about automation, by the way, which I spent a lot of time on. If you look at the occupations that are growing versus ones that are declining, many of the ones that are growing (coughs) look a lot like care work. And a lot of them don't have great wage structures. So if you look at just this income question, some of it is coming from the occupational skill shifts that are occurring that's creating this sense of anxiety and so forth. And there's a part of it has also been a bit of a gendered problem because, in fact, many of the occupations that have declined have mostly been very male-dominated. And so you've got these societies of, uh, of people who are no longer earning the kinds of incomes that they had. So we have to look at these wider issues and to simply point it at globalization just because it happened around the same time. Okay. I, think it's I want to let Thea respond. I just want to say one thing that's really important to us at Intelligence Squared because we're turning this into, as I said, a radio and TV show. A couple of people in the last few minutes got up and left. I am sure that they just went to get a drink and water and are coming back. And it's absolutely your right to leave. I looked up the rules. You are allowed to walk out. <laughs> but we really appreciate those of you who are staying with us through the end and we're coming down to the home stretch because we need your second vote. So if you can hang in, we'd appreciate it. Thea, the floor is yours. I think your question is really important about the non-economic ways in which globalization has undermined American workers. And if you think about things like dignity and voice and power, and you think about and put yourself in the shoes of an American worker who's been making a product, who's making an excellent product, who is incredibly productive, who is hardworking, and yet his company is going to move his job overseas or her job overseas because there are workers somewhere else who don't have basic human rights. They don't have the right to unionize. They um, maybe aren't protected by their government, or maybe even that the company is going to dump the toxic waste straight into the river. And because the rules that we 
we put in place in globalization aren't doing a good job of protecting us from that kind of undermining and arbitrage, then that is an unfair reason to lose your job. So we think about the level playing field. The other thing, you know, I think Jason mentioned about, you know, the steel tariffs, about whether other countries are playing by the rules. When other countries like China undermine the rules, break the rules, the international trade rules by subsidizing, by... um, by subsidizing exports, by um, otherwise intervening in the market in a way that is unfair, there's no way an American company can survive uh, with American workers. And so our goal is to think about what are the what kind of rules could we have put in place for, for globalization that would have helped American workers have that sense of agency and of dignity and that their work was valued. And the other thing that I would say in terms of power and alienation is that a lot of American workers feel betrayed by politicians from both the Democratic and the Republican Party, politicians who campaigned saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I care about your job. And then when they got into but, but office, they But is that extraneous to the motion? Because you're not arguing that the politicians are, are undermining the working class. Our resolution is that... No, no, I'm not saying that cynically. We need to right. stay on... But I just want, I, to, I want you to land no, it to the argument. When the, po- the politicians put in place trade agreements that that hurt American workers, that didn't protect their jobs, that didn't protect against unfair trade practices. But I, can I just... Uh, can I pick up one you, thing Jason and off of what Thea just said? She just said when China is breaking the rules. That's because there's actually a set of rules right now that govern things like surges, that govern things like dumping, that govern things like illegal subsidies. Yeah, but we don't enforce them. And we can act. But we we don't. That's the problem. We can. We we have consistently won in the WTO when we brought cases. We include rules on child labor in trade agreements, and you see big improvements in child labor in the countries. Those have become more enforceable. TPP had enforceable in a way that NAFTA wasn't, in part because of you, in part because you've kept pushing on the labor. Those labor standards, those rules are the rules that we're... Jared, very quickly, because I, I want okay, to get I'll one more to question. Quick. I'm pretty shocked by uh, Jason's claim that globalization is, you know, he said it's a negative 15%, meaning that it actually contributed to the well-being of, uh, of the working class. You know, I cited this number from a widely accepted study that 40% of the manufacturing job losses in the 2000s from the China shock were concentrated, this gets to your question a second ago, were concentrated in geographical areas. Those same authors went back and looked at the political implications of that, uh, of that concentration and found that it wasn't people like Thea and I making these arguments that gave us Trump, it was exactly the opposite. It was the elitists who wouldn't allow our arguments to be elevated that allowed Trump to surface. Let me go get to one more question before we wrap. And there was a question here. And I want to, you know, if you can hang in. Come on. Hi, Um, I'd like to talk about services trade, and I would like to hear from Jared and Thea about the argument that a lot of Americans are employed by foreign companies operating in the U.S., and in fact, export from the U.S. Thank you. Great question. And we have a surplus in services, is what you were saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't think there's a a problem with that, and that it is, I think, one of the areas in which the U.S. does have a comparative advantage, so to speak, which is that we do a very good job. Also, you know, incoming foreign investment. I have no argument with incoming foreign investment. I have no argument with with trade and services. The question is whether we're regulating it appropriately, whether we have the right set of rules in place. And one argument I would just make quickly about services trade is that we actually need more rules. Like, for example, in um, movie-making, A lot of countries subsidize movie making or TV um, 
exports and so on. And we don't have any protections against subsidies in the service sector trade, as we do in manufacturing. And so that's an area where the the trade laws could actually be improved to do a better job uh, protecting that trade. But I don't think that undermines our argument in the least bit. James, last word for you. I was going to add, what, what, Jared keeps citing this careful study that I think is referring to the work that David Archer yep. and David Dorn did. Uh, I'm struck by a particular quote that I've just found I'm going to read to you by David Otter. He says, over time, automation has had a far bigger effect on glo- than globalization and would have eventually eliminated those jobs anyway uh, in the long run. So I think as we think about the particular impacts, I think we underestimate the impact of automation in particular, especially if you care about the American working class. Let's look ahead a bit. What's automation and technology going to do to, to the workforce over the next decade or two? We're and not we're, debating that, that today. Yeah, no, but, 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 we're having the, but, but it's important because if we're going to fix things, if we care about the American working class, Let's focus on the big problems and the big questions, the structure of how our corporations work, the structure of how we treat our workers, yeah. so the way in which technology is going to have an impact. I can quickly... Uh, that's where we should spend time. So that's a, that's a good David Otter quote. Let me quote myself. You know, <laughs> I said, teasing apart the factors is much harder than economists make it sound. Thea and I do not disagree that automation and technology are in the mix, and we're not arguing that they don't undermine the working class as well, although I think it's much less visibly understandable to workers themselves who recognize that when the factory went to Mexico, they, their family, and their community were worse off. And I haven't heard any argument from the other side that contradicts that. We're going to have to save that for closing rounds because that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is globalization has undermined America's working class. And now we move on to our closing round. It is very brief. It's closing statements by each debater in turn. Those statements will be two minutes each. And here to make her closing statement in support of the motion is Thea Lee. I'm sorry, I'm missing my card. You thought I had this all memorized. And you're... Thea Lee. (laughs) Well, thank you all for being here tonight. And thanks so much to my awesome partner, Jared, and to James and Jason for their eloquent arguments. In the 2016 election, Donald Trump surfaced a real issue that resonated with a lot of voters who had felt abandoned by the elite of both political parties and unheard. Jared and I and a broad coalition of environmental and consumer and social justice advocates have been pounding this issue for many decades, but not always breaking through the elite shell around this issue. And even though Donald Trump was an unlikely flag-bearer for this issue. He's an outsourcing billionaire. He sounded angry, and he sounded sincere. But in the end, President Trump's actual trade policy has been ham-handed, erratic, and inconsistently messaged. He has alienated key trading partners rather than coordinating an effective, coherent, long-term global strategy with them. His trade and immigration agenda is encased in a toxic sludge of racism and xenophobia. And his domestic policies demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that he doesn't give a fig about American workers. He's looking for red meat and an applause line, but it's important for us to be honest tonight. He filled a vacuum. And I think we might not be here tonight on the Aspen stage if Hillary Clinton had won the election instead. 
But this gives us an opportunity to recognize that our trade policy has utterly failed the American working class for many decades. We need to build an alternative vision and policy from the bottom up, true to our American principles and values. And we need domestic policies like full employment, stronger unions, labor protections, and investment in infrastructure and skills, and a tax code that will support that kind of investment. We can't get to that new policy until we're honest about the failure of the old one. So please, join me. Vote yes. Globalization has failed the American working class. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thea Lee. Thea Lee, president of the Economic Policy Institute. Our resolution again. Globalization has undermined America's working class. Here making his closing statement against the motion. Jason Furman, professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Um, The United States is not the only country that's experienced globalization. 50% of Denmark's economy is tradable, 40% of Sweden's, and they have very high levels of unionization, low levels of inequality, great supports for workers. What we've talked about in the course of this debate is the failure of American domestic economic policy, not the failure of trade. You can trade a lot and you're going to be better off. If we had had less globalization, we would have been even worse off because what globalization gave us was those better jobs, better jobs that outnumbered the number of jobs that were lost, according to the most careful research. They gave us those lower prices. They put power in the hands of the large majority who benefit rather than the small, connected set of lobbyists who use their power to get tariffs for their um, favorite industries. I agree that Donald Trump tapped into a lot of things in America. He tapped into it by blaming foreigners for our problems, by blaming immigrants for our crime here in America, by demonizing others when the problems are actually our own and our own economic policies. And I want to end by talking about one person that voted for Donald Trump, a guy named Mike Lang from a small town in Pennsylvania, Farrell, Pennsylvania, who works in the steel industry. And he believed that Donald Trump would bring back steel jobs. Then Donald Trump put tariffs on steel. What happened to Mike Lang? He's about to lose his job because his company is owned by a foreign steel company, one of those investors in the United States. They rely on semi-finished imported steel that then they roll up and sell to Caterpillar and Harley-Davidson. He's the consummate beneficiary of globalization, foreign investment, selling on to others who are in turn exporting. He now says he never would have voted for Trump if he had known that Trump was going to destroy his job in steel not to mention all the jobs that reducing globalization is going to be destroying at Caterpillar, Harley-Davidson, and the other millions of workers who depend on imports. I'm sorry your time is up. Thank you very much, Jason Furman. The resolution again, globalization has undermined America's working class. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Jared Bernstein, senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, former chief economist to Vice President Joe Biden. I've really enjoyed uh, the debate tonight. I'm sorry again. Um, And I think that the opposition, uh, you know, made some really good points. And and a lot of what Jason just said resonated with me, except for the disconnect between what goes on in this country 
and what goes on in Denmark or Scandinavia. There's no question in my mind that we have the potential in this country for a globalization that is beneficial to the working class. But there's also no question in my mind that globalization, the way it's implemented in this country, has been extremely damaging for the working class. And if our opponents are arguing that um, the globalization has not undermined the middle class in Denmark, then I'm going to move over and sit with them because they're right about that. But we're talking about this country, and I've been having these arguments for decades trying to elevate the damage that trade has done to the middle class. Now, it's not the only factor that's hurt the middle class, but it's certainly a highly visible one. When I talk about the manufacturing wage as stagnating for 40 years in real terms, building in the price effects from trade, I'm talking about a sector that is very much exposed to global competition. The idea, when I was in the White House, we used to have this argument all the time, and I was always, I'm, I'm very much reminded of, the, brought back to those days, I remember coming out of a meeting once with Vice President Biden when we were arguing for much of what you've heard tonight, and you know, there was me and about 14 other people on the other side, and uh, you know, Biden hung his head when we got back to his office, and he said, that's one of the things I hate about Washington. And I think what he was saying is that there's people in these debates who are in such denial about trade's downsides that they can't see what's under their nose to the extent that they're willing to even recognize the negative trends. They talk about the inevitable costs of free trade and transition. Vote for us to support the motion so that we can end this denial about the downsides of globalization and work our way towards a, a, a trade policy that lifts our middle class, not hurts them. Thank, Thank you, Jared Bernstein. That resolution again, globalization has undermined America's working class. Here making his closing against the motion, James Manika, chairman and director of the McKinsey Global Institute. Well, thank you. This has been a wonderful discussion and debate. I think we've established a few things. Uh, I think we've established that both sides, we all care about what's happening with the American working class. And we're not happy with what's happened over the last 20, 30 years. I think we can all agree on that. I think we can also all agree that you know, the, the, the motion was not about whether the way America has implemented NAFTA or a particular trade agreement is done right or not. That was not the motion. The motion is, was, is globalization, has it undermined the working class or not? It's been happening for a very long time, even before NAFTA. So I think we are asking, we're debating the principle of globalization, the idea of globalization, not how we implement it. I think the reason why this is important also to be very clear about what the reasons are that have undermined the American worker is because I care, at least the American working class, I care about it when I look to the future. So let's look to the future for a second. If we look to the future, much of the economic growth in the world is going to happen elsewhere. If you look at the, the sheer number of people in the world who are now in the consuming class, who are going to be consuming products and services, they're not in the United States. The vast majority of them are elsewhere. Do we really want to close ourselves off from those opportunities for our workers? I'm not sure we do. Second, if we think about if ever there was a time for the United States to be looking out into the world and engaging with the world, is now. 
the power of technology is interesting. Technology is changing the, the role that you know, we play in our value chain, 3D printing, innovation, the use of digitization, and so forth, that in fact, in many cases, actually bring ma- many of those jobs back here. Do we not want to take advantage of those opportunities and look forward and encourage American innovation to engage the rest of the world and drive economic growth? I'm not quite sure we want to do that. So I think what we should be talking about is how do we address the issues that are affecting the working class and fix the problems that we've found in how we've implemented globalization as opposed to turning the clock back. Many of the barriers we're putting up at this moment seem to be turning the clock back, and I think that's a mistake. So if you agree with the the future outlook of what the world looks like, what opportunities look like, and what we need to fix, I would argue you should vote with us and and, and and turn down the motion that's been put on the table. Thank Thank you, you. James Manuke. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it's time to learn which side has been most persuasive for you. And it's an interesting thing. If you now know really clearly where you want to vote, that's a powerful thing. And also, if you're now more confused than ever, that's also a powerful thing to take seriously. But you vote the same way as you did in the beginning. You go to the, your, the, the uh, URL through your browser, and you have that choice for, against, or undecided. And we're going to produce the results in just a couple of minutes. I'll give you about 10 or 20 more seconds of silence to do that, but then I want to say a couple of things. So thank you. The first thing I want to say is, as I said at the beginning, our goal is to raise the level of public discourse by putting on essentially a competition, a contest, uh, in which that friction and energy gets you to actually listen to both sides. But guess what happens when that's happening? You're listening to both sides. But we also want to do it in a way that is civil and respectful and full of fact and full of data and full of logic. And these four debaters came that way and argued with each other. You showed so much respect for each other. This was so civil. This is such actually a sensitive topic. And the way you did it, I just want to congratulate you for, for the way that you brought this here. I also want to say something else, and we're saying this with heavy hearts. We're going to dedicate this debate to a longtime supporter of Intelligence Squared, our friend Richard Eldon. He was a friend of Intelligence Squared, and inside Intelligence Squared, he had friends. Richard loved journalism. He loved the media. He supported organizations that protect journalists out in the world. As a journalist, I value that enormously. So it is with great respect and honor uh, and in sharing our thoughts with his family that we dedicate this debate to Richard Eldon. Thank you for that. Um, This concludes our season, our spring season. Uh, We're back in the fall. we're, We're already putting together our schedule um, we know some of what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing a debate on healthcare pricing at the Mayo Clinic's Transform Con- Conference. We're also, this coming season, beginning in the fall, be looking at issues like identity politics, uh, whether or not Silicon Valley has lost its soul. And on the lighter side, we're going to do a debate on the question of whether Donald Trump has been good for comedy or not. <laughs> That answer already says that. <laughs> that response already answers it. Um, uh, if, if you're in New York, uh, you can def- definitely sign up for our debates, but keep an eye on us as we travel around the country as we might very well come to your community. Um, the other thing I want to do is we're waiting for the results. I just like, you know, the two of you have been in uh, rhetorical combat here, but uh, there have been a number of times, particularly even in your closing, Jared, where you said you kind of you were persuaded by things the other side said. I just want to 
uh, without creating an overly kumbaya moment about this, <laughs> I, I do want to get a sense of whether you heard things from your opponents. I'll start with you, James. You heard things from the other side where you said, yeah, I, I, I agree with that, and maybe I, I would even reconsider on that. So why don't you start on that one? Well, I, th- I think Theo was particularly very persuasive about the rules that we put in place and just how broken they are. Mm-hmm. They really have been. I think the way we've done many of these agreements has not been ex- helpful. So I think that's one of the things we have to fix about how we do these rulemaking, how we set these rules. So that's very com- persuasive. That got through to you. How about yeah. you, Thea? Well, I would agree with something I think both James and Jason said at different times, that this is partly a failure of our domestic policy as well as our trade policy. But my argument is those things are connected to each other. But I agree with you. We've made choices. The United States has made choices that have uh, undermined American workers. But some of those, I, I would argue, are, are really part of the same discussion around bad choices around globalization policy and bad choices that similarly undermine workers in domestic policy as well. So, so there really is more common ground here than yeah. meets the eye when you set up a dividing line. How about you? But I don't, everyone's been so nice. I, I don't want to be really rude and tell you the truth. I learned zero um, from Jared <laughs> and Thea tonight. Um, but I've learned an enormous amount um, from Jared and Theo over the last 15 years of talking to them, um, reading from them. And, you know, one thing I learned, which we unfortunately didn't get into the weeds of at all tonight, um, is, you know, I think our trade agreements, the way we negotiate them is a mixed bag. Um, there are stronger intellectual property protections for pharmaceuticals, for example, that we included. I think it was the price of passage. I think it is a small issue compared to the trade agreements as a whole. Um, but it's a minus. Um, just like I look at the Affordable Care Act, and there were things in that I didn't like that were there because of lobbyists, but overall, well, I, I support it. So you, you, I think some things like intellectual property protections, maybe investor state dispute settlement, they haven't fully convinced me, but they've made me think about it. Um, but some of those details of the agreements, both where we get them wrong, okay. where I'm, we can get them wrong. You've, you've kept it from being ah, kumbaya, so thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Jared? Well, we've been uh, arguing about this for such a long time, Jason and I, and, and uh, uh, that, uh, again, you know, nothing, nothing too much new. But I thought that there was a commonality between the two sides that was very important, which was that it's not, about, it's not just about globalization. It's about how globalization is implemented. And I, we have a good, robust argument. We think it's implemented badly here. I think the other side is sort of, yeah, maybe to some extent, but there's also uh, you know, an upside to it. But the context within which technology, globalization... Any, anything you want to think of takes place is so essential to economic outcomes. And I think both sides underscored that. All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for actually hanging in for this because I know it's longer than the normal event here. We're coming to the end. I have the final results. We have had you vote twice here in Aspen uh, at the Aspen Ideas Festival in partnership with Intelligence Squared on this resolution. Globalization has undermined America's working class. Again, the way we determine victory, it goes to the team whose numbers move up the most between the first and the second vote. Let's look at the first vote. In the first vote on globalization has undermined America's working class, 36% agreed, 45% were against, 19% were undecided. Those are the first results. Let's look at the second vote. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, globalization has undermined America's working class. First vote, 36%. Second vote, 32%. They lost four percentage points. The team against the motion, their first vote was 45%. Their second vote, 61%. They pulled up 16 percentage points. Victory goes to the team arguing against the motion, globalization has undermined America's working class. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. 
We'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody, very, very much. It was a pleasure.